Well, we are going to go to John chapter 1 today. Uh, John chapter 1, we're going to drink deeply of the truth of the incarnation, the enfleshment of God that happened on that first Christmas, whenever it was. The date of Christmas itself isn't that significant. December 25th is almost definitely wrong. But the event that we commemorate is what theologian Herman Bovink called the central fact in the entire history of the world. That God became veiled in flesh, that he is incarnate deity, as we sing in Joy to the World, is the central reality because it's the answer for the deepest question and the deepest longing in our hearts. Because the deepest question that we're all asking at some level is, what is God like? And then the deepest longing that we all have is for some soul satisfaction, for perfect joy, for perfect peace, for perfect love. And this time of year we sing about Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So all of our fears about what God might be like, all of our hope for something better and more satisfying, they're all answered in the birth of Jesus. And so if you're here this morning wondering what God might be like, if you're wondering if that deep dissatisfaction that you always seem to feel and you can never seem to kick, if you're wondering that could ever be satisfied, then I would invite your attention to the manger. When John, who spent three years with Jesus, described the incarnation of Jesus in John 1.1, he said this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We could unpack this text for weeks. So if you leave here today saying, thinking, you know, we never mentioned this one thing in the text, you're absolutely right. So we, we can only do what we can do in a half an hour. So, so we've already admitted defeat. Um, we've already said there's going to be a lot more unsaid than we actually say about this passage. But notice two main things today. Number one, what this passage says about Jesus. And number two, what he came to do for us. I mean, first of all, clearly this text says that Jesus is God. Verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. This word, Jesus, didn't originate in Bethlehem. He took on flesh there, he was born there, but he existed long before the manger. John starts this book with a phrase that would be familiar to anyone who's even started reading the Bible, in the beginning. The book of Genesis starts with these words, and then it goes on to describe the creation of everything. If you're a regular Bible reader, like I hope you are, you probably read that passage on January 1st every year. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But John goes even further back than creation, and he says, in the beginning was the word. 
way back before anything was made, the word was there. This word was with God and this word was God. And so Jesus is God. He's the greatest of human teachers, but he's not just a great human teacher. He's founded a a religion that changed the world, but certainly he didn't come mainly as a religious founder. There in the manger, he is God himself. And this is huge because this means that if we wanna know what God is like, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus in all of his life, in his living, in his suffering, in his dying, and in the manger, we see God. We see exactly God when we look at Jesus. So much so that Jesus says in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1, 1 says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So when we look at Jesus, we're not just looking at a really good guy, not even just the ultimate guy. We're not just looking at someone who really knew God well, we are looking at God himself. And Christians have always affirmed this, that that Jesus Christ is truly God. The Nicene Creed calls him God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. And this is a truth for us to have, not just in our heads, but it's a truth for us to love. Because this means that the only real God that there is, is exactly like Jesus, because Jesus is God. T.F. Torrance writes, there is in fact no God behind the back of Jesus. No act of God other than the act of Jesus. No God but the God that we see and meet in him. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God, the very love and life of God poured out to redeem humankind. The mighty hand of God and the power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. All things are in God's hands, but the hands of God and the hands of Jesus in life and in death are the same. And this is a big deal because sometimes we think that Jesus is like the mask that God wears. That there's a real God behind that mask and that God's kind of mean and temperamental, not real big on compassion, not very eager to show grace, kind of into smiting for smiting's sake. And and so he hired Jesus as kind of his PR firm or it was like an undercover boss kind of thing. Like he, he sent him in to try to establish some kind of relationship with mankind. And in this view, Jesus comes in and he says, God didn't really mean that. God's not really like that. He's a lot better than, than he seems. But Jesus is not God's PR guy trying to change public perception about God. He isn't trying to downplay the attributes of God. He is God. And so Michael Reeves writes, let us then be rid of that horrid, sly idea that behind Jesus, the friend of sinners, there's some more sinister being. One thinner on compassion and grace. There cannot be. Jesus is the word. He's one with his father. He's the radiance, the glow, the glory of who his father is. And this means that if God is exactly like Jesus, because Jesus is God, then I can interact with God the same way that every sinner interacted with Jesus as we read his stories in the Gospels. 
This is great news. This means that I can be like the guy with weak faith who comes to Jesus and says, I do believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus answers his request. I can be like the woman caught in adultery, bowing before God and hear God say, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. I can be like the thief on the cross, a certified criminal worthy of the death I'm dying and say, remember me and know that I'll be in his kingdom. We know what Jesus is like towards sinners like us. He's tender and compassionate and eager to pardon, ready to welcome the thieves and the prostitutes into his kingdom before the religious people when they truly repent. Jesus isn't some alternate God or sub-God. He is true God. Jesus is exactly what God is like. Reeves again says, I know what he's like toward the weak and sick. In him, we see the true meaning of the love, the power, the wisdom, the justice, and the majesty of God. As we look through this book at Jesus, then we will not be looking at someone other than God. We will be contemplating God himself. And in fact, if we do not go to this word to know God, then all of our thoughts about God, however respectful, worshipful, or philosophically satisfying, will be nothing but idolatry. Jesus came to us on Christmas as God. He's the ultimate final message of God to us, the exact image of God's character, the radiance of God's glory. It's like his face, is, it's like a face stamped on a coin. If I want to know what George Washington looks like, I can look at a quarter because there is an exact imprint. And if we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. So will God hear your prayer of desperation? Well, what would Jesus do? Because he's God. Will God forgive your deepest, darkest sin? Well, what did Jesus do with people's sins? That's what God does with them. Does God really understand what you're going through? Jesus went through it. Like actually went through it. He did that. This is what God is like. When God comes to his people, he comes first as a baby in a manger leaves his throne, gives up his comforts, becomes truly human, all out of love. And then this baby in the manger grows, takes on all of the human life, and then goes to his cross, where he pays the price for the sins of all who would believe in him. So does God love you? Well, does Jesus? And can you look at the cross and say he doesn't? Is he eager to receive you? He, he came for you. He welcomes all who come to him on his terms. There's nobody too far. There's nobody unloved. This is what God is like. You might say, okay, I hear this. You know, I kind of get dragged to church this time of year, but I don't believe in God. Well, I'd, I'd ask you to kind of tell me about the God that you don't believe in. I, I would bet that you would describe a God that I don't believe in either. A God who delights in punishment, a God who's cruel, a God who's aloof and far off, a God who's not interested in people, a God who's not understanding, a God who doesn't care about humanity, a God who offers good but never delivers promises but doesn't follow through. And I would say, I don't believe in the exact same God that you don't believe in. And that God that you're describing sounds like the devil, and I'm not a fan of his either. Like, so we're on the same page there. Like, I'm an atheist about that God too. 
But the God that I believe in is a God who took on flesh so that he could show the way, who took the punishment we deserve so that he could purchase our pardon, a God who's kind and cares so much that he gives his son, and a God that's anything but aloof and far off. He took on flesh and was born in one of our towns. That's the God that we believe in. That's the God that we worship. We worship a God who understands because he has truly been there in Jesus. He cares so much about humanity that he forever permanently took on humanity. So in Jesus, we have the answer to the question, what is God like? Look in the manger, look at the life of Christ, look at the cross, look at the empty tomb. We beheld his glory. And in Jesus, we have the answer for the longing in all of our hearts. And we all know that there's like a deep dissatisfaction in us no matter what. We all want something that's perfect, perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect contentment, perfect calm about the future. But none of us have ever experienced that. I mean, we read books and we watch movies and scroll social media looking for something, but we never fully know what we're looking for and we never fully find it. I mean, there's never been a time where you've just been doom scrolling on Instagram and you finally came to the photo that your heart was after and you said, oh, that was it. There, <laughs> done. Uh, that's what I was going for that whole time. No, it's just never there. We're, we're just always scrolling, always looking for more. And sometimes this season, especially, we can think that if we could attain enough of the beauty of this season, or if we could recreate the most nostalgic memory that we have from a time when we used to be satisfied, or at least when we convince ourselves we used to be satisfied, then maybe we could achieve satisfaction again. But we never achieve that satisfaction. And in fact, a real look at the past, we, we know that we weren't satisfied then either. There's something in all of us that always wants more, that wants something infinite. We all have what C.S. Lewis called the inconsolable secret. This, this longing for something that we've never fully experienced. Lewis writes, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they're not that thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower that we've not found. The echo of a tune that we haven't heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. But Jesus is the one our hearts are after. He's the longing underneath all of our other longings. He's that far off country that we've longed for, but we've never been there. That familiar place that seems familiar, but we, we don't know why it seems familiar because we've never been. In Christ, God became a man and lived among us. Literally in John, he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent to house his glory. And that tent was Jesus. And it's only in Jesus that we find that deep, infinite glory that our hearts are longing for. And that's what this passage says, that all of the incomprehensibleness and, and goodness of God came to us in Jesus. And now if we open our eyes to him, we can understand it. 
And there's coming a day for Christians where we will see him. And when we see him, that will be the moment of total satisfaction. That'll be the end of all the scrolling. We'll finally land on Jesus and we'll say, that's it. Like, that's what my heart was looking for the whole time. He's the one. And John calls Jesus here the word or or the logos. And, And that term was used in lots of ways in their day. Greek philosophers used it all the time. And people wonder if John drew on their meanings, and and he may have, but John wasn't a learned philosopher. He was a fisherman. He knew the Bible, but he probably didn't go to college in Athens to learn fishing with a, a minor in philosophy. He learned to fish from his dad. He learned the Bible at home and in the synagogue, and he writes his gospel in very simple language. John's gospel is, is the one that most kids memorize their first Bible verse from. It's the one that, that most seminary students first translate from Greek into English because it's simple. John is a simple man who's drawing from, from what he knew, which was Bible. And in the Bible that he had, when God would speak to a prophet, he would say things like, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. And then Isaiah would know what God wanted him to tell everyone. It was a powerful word in Psalm 33 that made the heavens. In Psalm 107, when God's people were sick and about to die, it says, God sent forth his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. God's word was God's powerful message that came and affected human history. And here John says that that message was powerful enough to create the world, to heal and to teach us in the, and to teach us that, that his word came to do that and he came and lived here. That perfect, peace-giving, healing, soul-satisfying word is Jesus. And we have that infinite emptiness that will never be consoled except by that which is infinite. And Jesus is that infinite one. Okay, but there's some bad news and some good news about that. In John 1.11, it says he came to his own people, but his own people didn't receive him. And then in verse 12, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So he said his own people didn't receive him, but those who did receive him became his children. They received the the gift that he is. So God, the great king of the universe who has always existed, who needs nothing, who had it all, came to us. He came to his people who were in darkness and his people resisted him. Now, if you didn't know that story and you, and you heard about a king who came to his people and his people waged war against the king, you would assume that that king would, would fight that enemy and procure subjects for himself. If a king invaded and went to a hostile land, you either died or surrendered or, or became a slave. We'd assume that that king wanted something from us. He wanted servants, he wanted slaves. But this king, who is love, comes to his own people who reject him and he serves them. Mark 10, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to ransom us, to make us sons and daughters, to rescue us. This is a God who came to save. Jesus didn't come to get more power for himself. He already had plenty of that. He laid that aside to come to us. He didn't come to to get anything that he needed. Jesus never needed anything. He came to give and to serve so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
Yeah, but that's bad news because we just, by nature, don't receive him. We don't accept that on our own. We reject that. We fight against that. We're, we're enemies of him on our own. So even if he came to give himself for all of us, which he did, even if he invites all of us to believe and be saved, which he does, what do we do with that if in our hearts we don't respond positively to him? What do we do if we're just by nature his enemies? We don't want to respond to that invitation. Well, John 1.13 says that those who believe are the ones who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So for us to come to believe, God does a work in our hearts so that we can be reborn. Not because our hearts desired it, because by nature they didn't. Not because we were trying hard to achieve him, because we weren't. We were trying hard to get away from him. But because God loved and desired us. And this is amazing. God did all the work because there were two big obstacles between us and eternal life. One is that we, we couldn't comprehend God. We, we couldn't even understand what he's like. And so, so our sin and our failures and all the things that separated us from him, we couldn't even understand how to get past those things. So there was an obstacle in our understanding, and then there was an obstacle in our hearts that even once we did understand, even though once Jesus did come to us, we wanted nothing to do with him. So God overcame both of those obstacles. First, on Christmas, he sent his son to live among us. So now we, we surely can't fully comprehend God, but we can know him truly. We can understand when he went to the cross, he showed us our, our greatest need, which is that we've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve hell. By sending his son, he, he showed us something that we could understand, something that was true. He told us what's true about us, about eternity, about our greatest need. And then he did more. I mean, if Jesus came and died for everybody and invited everyone to believe that would be an amazing gift, but our hearts were so dead set against him that we would reject it. So God, rather than just leave us to ourselves, still went after us. And if we believe what God did to overcome our innate sinfulness is he sent his spirit to cause us to believe to be born again, to, to make us alive and to make us path from death to life. He gave us this gift of faith. So God overcomes every obstacle to save his own. So that means that the moment that we believe in him, even though we're sinners, we're given the right to become the sons and the daughters of God. This is great news for sinners like you and me. It's exactly what we need. So what do we do with this? Well, we receive Jesus. Receive him as the God who saves, who came to us to get close to us, even though we had sinned, who came to pay for our sins on the cross, who conquered death, who showed his love for us. And seeing that kind of love, we respond by running to him with our sin to confess to him. We believe that he's light and he's life and he's love. We believe that what we see in Jesus is exactly who God is. And we can trust him for salvation. When you have questions and fears about God, let them be answered by the person of Jesus Christ. And Christians, let's live like he is the one who will in the end console every longing. 
Go all in on him. Believe that this is true. Believe that he's the one that your heart is after. That takes all the pressure off making the holidays just right. Takes all the pressure off, off the heart that's always scanning, always looking, always scrolling, trying to find satisfaction. If we know where that is, that it's only in Jesus, in his perfect presence, when we see him, then it takes all the pressure off of all those other things to be the things that's safe. If he's the one that truly saves and consoles and satisfies, let's anchor our hopes in him. And then if we do, if we really believe this is true, let's spread that. That's good news. If what we see in Jesus is exactly who God is, that is great news for sinners. It's great news for the longing. That's great news for people who have no hope. So let's spread that light.